the diamond, I realized the The Empathy Museum presents A Mile in My Shoes. These are black size 11 crocs, which are a mix between clogs and sandals. They have holes all around them and small bumps somewhere. They have also have a black strap on the back of them, which can either go forward or back. They look very comfy and are perfect for the summer. They also come with a blue overshoe. These are sometimes seen in swimming pools or hospitals. They can either be used to protect the shoe from the ground or to not get the ground dirty because of the shoe. These shoes belong to Chris Grant. This is his story. My name's Chris Grant. I'm a doctor. I'm an intensive care consultant. So the intensive care unit is the ultimate extreme of healthcare. The end that's most sort of technologically dependent. So anybody that needs support with their breathing, so ventilators, breathing machines, anybody whose kidneys have failed and so needs a, a kidney dialysis, anybody whose blood pressure is so low that they need really strong drugs like adrenaline type of drugs. So when you have what we call organ failure, when you're extremely unwell, that you're reliant on really, really potent drugs or therapies to sort of sustain life. That's the element of, of, of work that we're involved in. It's very invasive. It's very aggressive medically. But it's also, you know, can do a huge amount of good as well. So our ability to treat and to get people through what would be you know, usually life-ending illnesses is, is, is huge. But what comes with that is a degree of, of burden, so because it's so aggressive, there are times when it, it, it doesn't work or the benefits are, 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 you know, are so small in terms of the chances of survival, the chance of good outcome that we spend uh, quite a lot of our time in conversations saying why it wouldn't be appropriate to, to offer that care. So you qualify age 22, 23. You are a medical graduate, but you've only just begun a lifelong career of, of learning not only the sort of the science, but, but the art of medicine. Uh, and I can distinctly remember the first time when I felt, when I say responsible, um, it wasn't anything that I did as such, but when I, um, there was a, a loss of life for a patient I cared for, the build-up to that, to the patient having a cardiac arrest, and the sense of absolute fear and loneliness and trying to get when I felt others to help and others to support um, the patient and therefore me, was a sense that I'll never forget. You know, I can remember her name, I can remember the operation she had, I can remember everything about that whole whole weekend. Um, and to be the sort of the young, um, deeply inexperienced, emotionally, um, feeling deeply responsible, 
um, for a patient's life and then to be there when the cardiac arrest team arrived and you were a peripheral player and you weren't really contributing to watch that and go through all of that and then not be able to share that with anybody else even though all my colleagues were going through that there was not a mechanism or a culture whereby you would debrief and to this day I don't know you know what I did was was right or wrong um, nobody ever said anything at all about the whole incident but to me as an individual brand new uh, medic um, that memory was one of my formative ones and I don't know whether that experience um, is of any benefit other than it reminds me constantly of of the duty of care I have but also I guess the vulnerability you have when you make a connection with somebody you do feel deeply sort of personally involved even now even though our work is slightly more fragmented and we are a lot more shift based um, there are occasions now even as a fairly senior consultant that I still have that sense of you know am I doing the right thing could I have done anything better that constant sense of reflection and 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 I get a degree of anxiety I think we all do because I think that's what makes healthcare so brilliant to work in yet so challenging is that it's ultimately a, an emotive interaction we focus a lot on the interactions the pills the machines and so on but because it makes us very vulnerable when we're unwell or at least it makes me very vulnerable when I'm unwell I think it's probably the, one of the few businesses if that's the right phrase whereby emotions are at the forefront of every interaction so I think we're going to get more and more emphasis on the emotive side of our offering than, than any other and yet we're so focused on technology and healthcare and and the digital era and I think that's actually just a bit of a, a mask for the approaching emotive uh, I won't call it tsunami but when we get to talk more and more about end of life when we talk more and more about what medicine shouldn't do rather than what it, it can do I think these conversations are going to get even more complex so it's an area of medicine that I enjoy um, but equally it's an element of medicine that I find also fairly burdensome to be privileged enough to witness the experience of bereavement for other families and when you're privileged to, to watch that and to share that and to guide patients through that sometimes it just becomes overwhelming and um, quite often when you've left a, a large family conversation and it's you know essentially resulting in the acceptance that their loved one is unfortunately going to die when you walk away you know it's not uncommon for for the nurse and you to sort of exchange gallows humor one of the rather trite observations would be that if you don't have that emotional response then you might be be close to emotional burnout so you know it's not necessarily a good experience but i think what we what we tend to say to one another is that if you don't occasionally feel that or often feel that then you may want to challenge quite where you are as a person as a human being but there's not a week that goes by or a shift that goes by that, that something or someone doesn't somehow connect to you and, and it's very unpredictable and it's, it's, it's I guess, again, the, the, the beauty or the tragedy of the work we do. It's, um, it's an enormous privilege to be able to serve families and patients, but again, it, it does take a piece of you. It does, there is a degree, I expect, a price that you pay for, for, for the work we undertake. My daughter, Jessica, when we were working in America, in Boston, um, the first time I knew she was really sick, um, which sounds a bit... As an intensive care consultant, you'd think I'd have known. 
but as a dad you don't you, you know you assumed she had seizures so I assumed they were what we call febrile seizures so lots of kids get high temperatures and they, they fit but I, I kept saying to my wife but she's not got a temperature and we couldn't work it out and we were just so fortunate that we went to one of the world's leading children's hospitals in Boston and we were so fortunate as we were brought in one of the world's leading professors of emergency medicine was on duty and he looked at her and the story didn't add up and he took her for a scan and I remember and here's my prejudice I remember thinking you know Americans, you know, over-treating, she doesn't need a scan. I remember thinking, well, you know, and, and it was the moment whereby, and I've done it myself, whereby I took my daughter into the, where, the room where you, you get the scan done, and I remember looking, there's always like, well, kind of like a, a two-way window where the, the medics sit behind the window and they look at the scan, and I could see the way they looked at the screen, so they were looking at my daughter's scan results, and they looked at me and looked at the screen again. I could just tell by the way they, they didn't look at me that I knew something was deeply wrong. taken from that room straight into the resuscitation bay and that's when it might, that's sort of the whole world imploded and it, it was the moment I guess when I was signing consent form which to this day you know it appalls me that I do the same I was crying at the moment because she was becoming more and more unconscious and I remember signing a piece of paper which was completely meaningless I know it's what we have to do but a completely meaningless piece of paper that you know allegedly explained the risks and benefits when I had no choice, yet we still went through this kind of ritual that we do in medicine about signing paper to show that I knew what I was doing and handed my daughter over to complete strangers. It was only when they uh, sat in this waiting room with my son and my wife and this neurosurgeon came up to us and sat us down and kind of gave us the, the what we always do a very technical description of what had happened and that they didn't know and, and when it was when she said you know we don't know whether she'll wake up and whether she'll survive and kind of said oh you know can I get you a cup of tea and and we kind of didn't know what to do and then we were left alone and it was that moment of of absolute fear and vulnerability we were just the three of us it was late at night um and, and and although I wouldn't ever criticise the doctor for the way they did it and what they'd done because you know it was that doctor that saved my daughter's life, they were just so ill prepared to support us and we were so ill prepared to receive that information. Those conversations, um, I don't know how we can do them better, but I know certainly that that wasn't the right way to do it. That 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 event still you know still causes me you know distress. What's more difficult is that somehow I probably still do that inadvertently myself. I'll still have those conversations with family and family members and I will perhaps choose a word inadvertently that's that's blunt or sounds uncaring or I'll use a terminology that's that's foreign, you know, that's technical, that isn't empathetic or isn't you know, plain English. And I still don't think we've addressed how do we go around in a very emotive, resource-constrained working environment and deliver really difficult conversations in a way that doesn't further damage or scar um, relatives and friends and, and, and even patients. Um, you know, that element of love whereby that's what you want when your family, you know, you want to be surrounded by that. And, and somehow how we encapsulate all of that in, in those conversations, I guess, will be 
will be the way that we will truly transform healthcare going forward. I think Jessie's changed me as a doctor, never mind as a, as a parent. She is seven, just turned seven, so she had a bleed in her brain and uh, again it transpired that unbeknownst to us she's got a, a congenital um, abnormality, so an abnormality that she's been born with which is a set of blood vessels that are, um, they're not well formed so they're very um, vulnerable. She's at the age where life is really quite pleasant, you know, it's about enjoyment and, and you no know, she gets worried, she doesn't like hospitals, she has some pretty tough times, um, but she doesn't have restrictions, you know, when she's well, she goes out and does what any other seven-year-old little girl does, um, and so we're remarkably fortunate that that's, that's happened, you know, we twice thought that she uh, wasn't going to survive, and she did. I think what we're trying to do particularly you know, with a sense of being a parent and never expecting that to ever enter your world, that, that, that fear of losing your child. What we've done or tried to do is look at it the other way and try to say, well, each day is another day that we may not have thought we were going to have. Uh, and every day she wakes up and every day she's fine and well and healthy because she goes to school. She's like in any other normal healthy kid to the outside world. Uh, we have to constantly try and remind ourselves how lucky we are. Um, I guess it's reinforced my beliefs about empathy and trying to understand um, everybody else's perspectives and, and, and equally not jump to conclusions. So I make a lot of assumptions about uh, how people manage you know, their own psychology, their own health and well-being. And, and it's really difficult to, to live in others and, and to walk in others' shoes. You know, she is teaching me more than I'll ever teach her in terms of her, her ability to cope. She has her own coping mechanism. She has a card, an emergency card, that allows us to allow her to go on trips and to go to school friends, because otherwise I think, you know, both Emma and myself would be completely psychotic, but we've got to allow her to, to live her life. She can't be punished by our fears and our worries. And so she has her own medical card and she proudly shows that around about what you do in an emergency and all those type of things. So she is guiding me, um, which is quite tough to say as a, I think I'm supposed to be the adult in the relationship, but... Um, I, I am learning more about me and about my work and and about my myself from from her than 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 you know than anything else. Chris's story was produced by Eleanor McDowell. His shoes are part of a growing collection of footwear hosted by the Empathy Museum's and Marla My Shoes exhibition. The shoes and stories come from all over the world. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to find out where we're going next.